With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Hello, and thanks for joining me for the Saturday edition of Weekends with me, Jason Olborn here on TNT. And it's a happy Australia Day for those of us here in this country, even though we're broadcasting around the world here on TNT, as you're well aware. Hopefully, you'll be able to tell your friends about us and tune in as it goes when you find your favourite presenters wherever they are around the world. And of course, all of the challenging subjects that we are looking at on a daily basis. Well, one of my favorite subjects is gonna be challenged here today for all the world to see. Because like my first guest, who I'll introduce you to in a moment, I too was a teenage JFK conspiracy freak. However, my guest Fred Litwin will in a moment tell me why he went back the other way and is supporting and has got the goods, he says, and in three books to say that Lee Harvey Oswald was the man responsible for the killing of JFK. And that is the big part of what's going on to always look and remind ourselves that our biases whatever they are, must be reconsidered at all costs, particularly now more than ever, as we are challenged almost every single day with information that we choose to believe or not believe, act upon or not, and our own due diligence is absolutely crucial. Now, coming up in the next hour on the show, we will be talking about Julian Assange, and I have two, not one, but two guests in the second hour who are working for many years to free Julian Assange. Of course, the Australian who has been held in Belmarsh Prison now for five years, and we're still waiting to find out what's gonna happen in the upcoming trial. And both Karen Hemming and um, Adriana Navarro will be with me in the next hour to talk about that. And in the third hour of today's show, I'll be speaking to an Australian journalist, Richard Kelly, who has been writing prolifically on his blog and for The Spectator amongst other areas about the things that affected him and all of us in the period, of course, for the uh, pandemic era. And it comes just as we learned that Dr. Brett Sutton was awarded an Order of Australia yesterday in the Australia Day Honours, and I'm sure Richard will have plenty to say on that issue. But let's get into the story of the day, well, the hour at least, and that is of JFK's assassination from a different perspective as how I have presented it to you in the past. Now, Fred Litwin, has written uh, part, well, written three books, and one of them, Oliver Stone's Flim Flam, The Demagogue of Dealey Plaza, is Fred's third book on the JFK assassination. In 2020, he published On the Trail of the Delusion, Jim Garrison, The Great Accuser, which examined one of the great miscarriages of American jurisprudence. In 2018, he published I Was a Teenage JFK Conspiracy Freak, detailing his journey from believing in a JFK conspiracy at 18 to slowly moving to believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. Fred has also written articles for the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Toronto Sun, C2C Journal, iPolitics, and the George Chester Review, and is often a panellist on the CTV News Channel. And in 2000, if that wasn't enough, he founded Northern Blues Music, a cutting-edge blues label that has released over 70 CDs and has garnered 12 Juno Awards and more than 40 Blues Music Award nominations, three of which were for Album of the Year. In 2007, Fred started the Free Thinking Film Society to showcase films on liberty, freedom and democracy. The Society has shown over 100 events, which include books, film launches and panel discussions. 
goodness me, I can't wait to get into this discussion. Fred Litwin, welcome to Weekends. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Look, look forward to this. Oh, it's wonderful. Thanks, Fred. And look, I think that part of it is that in, in all aspects of life, we don't necessarily have to agree on everything. The idea that we've been so hive-minded for so long over uh, something that we still don't know the origins of, referring, of course, to the uh, to the virus that started at all, COVID-19. And here we are on the other side, questioning now everything. And we should be able to question everything. And this is part of free speech. And that's the best part of what we do here at TNT Radio is the ability to be free from the shackles of being told what to think and what to say and to go out and to explore. And I'm uh, delighted to be able to welcome you today to talk about the books. And I'd like to go back, if you don't mind, and, and the idea of saying that I was a teenage JFK conspiracy freak, that was me at 19. Tell me what got you to be such a freak. And of course, we'll move into how it changed for you. Well, I was I was 18 years old. I was sitting at home watching the Geraldo Rivera show late night on a Thursday night in 1975, and he had Robert Roden on to show the Zapruder film, the first time ever on national TV in the United States. And I had never seen it, and I was watching it, and I saw the headshot and the JFK's move uh, heads goes back and to the left, and I was hooked. I mean, I wanted to find out what the hell was going on what happened it seemed very very apparent that he was shot from the front and uh the next day i went to the library and that was the start of my uh multi-decade search for what happened it's an incredible and impressive uh, stance to take because uh, having interviewed people let's say from the other side of the fence that argue that uh, Oswald did not act alone, have also put a lifetime worth of work into this and have also written multiple books now we can't all be right, and uh, I suppose we can't all be wrong either when you're de delving in facts and hours and hours and years and years. Why do you think it was that it, it was such an important thing that you have devoted so many years in, uh, in, in research and obviously publishing these books? Well, you know, in fact, for many years, I gave it up, you know, I mean, I, I, I went to school, I did, I did an MBA in 1978, I gave it all up. In fact, at one point, I threw out all my JFK books, I thought I would never go back to the JFK assassination after the House Select Committee on Assassinations. But I was living in England in 1991. And I happened to see an ad for a CD-ROM of the HSCA volumes of evidence. And I decided, you know what, I really should have a look at the volumes of evidence just to read it for myself. And I got it and I downloaded it onto my laptop. And one of the first things I saw was some of the trajectory diagrams of the HSCA. And I was floored. I mean, I was so used to reading the conspiracy books, which show these dotted lines that don't move and don't correspond to the single bullet theory. And here was real diagrams that showed everything matched up perfectly. And, and so I, that brought me back into it. And I really, I realized soon I have to write about this. I think that that conspiracy th uh, theorists who write about this have been misleading people for so long. And the more I read the HSCA volumes, the more I was convinced that Oswald was the lone gunman. It was so obvious from reading the evidence. So if we start back, so you've decided now that it, is it time to, um, to, to make a big play for this and, and write your own counter? Because of course, 1991, is the year that Oliver Stone's movie comes out. And of course, it's uh, well-received. It's a hit movie. 
gets nominated for about eight Academy Awards. It wins a couple, I think, for cinematography and editing, and it makes a huge splash. And of course, the US Congress gets all excited and decides that it wants to speed up the release of documents that have been held up, which even today, I understand that there's some 5,000 that have still yet to be released. So- No, no, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Let me correct you there. Mm -hmm. Every document has been released. There are about 3,500 documents with redactions but all the documents have been released. You have been greatly misled on the documents by JFK conspiracy theorists. All right. So if we go back and, and realize that everything has now been released, but three and a half thousand have been redacted, we go and, and, and just back time there. Did you go and see the Oliver Stone film at the same time? Because that would have come out, yeah. I suppose, when you got, is, is that what motivated you yes. to look at it or was it the other way around? Well, I, I had to see it because it was a big thing, and 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 uh, I was I was clearly amazed by the film because the cinematography, everything I had been reading about, is right in front of you. You know, you see the the autopsy and the killing and the motorcade and Oswald and everything's there, but I was horrified by the fact that he used Jim Garrison, um, and I, I you know right off the the start in nineteen seventy five nineteen seventy seven or seventy six, one of the first books I read was James Kirkwood's book. American grotesque about Jim Garrison. And so I was immune to all the nonsense about Garrison. I knew right up front, this guy is a charlatan. And I was horrified that he made uh, an innocent gay man, the villain of his, of his movie. And by that you're referring to uh, the uh, Clay Shaw, Clay Shaw. played by Tommy Lee Jones in the film. Yep. And um, and it's not the first time that that someone's made that uh, comparison that Jim Garrison um, w would you perhaps um, how would you characterize Garrison therefore a a as a man in other parts how do you did you you've obviously drawn a conclusion here um, apart from um, I suppose um, uh, being anti uh, uh, the character or the man that the character assassinating of Clay Shaw but how do you um, um, understand the Garrison character at this point? How have you developed a, um, uh, an understanding of him? Well, he was a man who, um, with great ambition, he had a great sense of humor, great ambition. He was very intelligent. He could speak on his feet very, very clearly. He loved to joust with reporters. Um, he was a very, very appealing uh, person, which is why he got elected. You know, he was terrific on television. Uh, I don't think, I think that, you know, I think he was bored by the job. By 1966, you know, he had been in the job uh, three or four years. I think he was bored by, you know, the robberies and dealing with murders and this and that. And it just coincided with, you know, Mark Lane's book and Edward J. Epstein's book. And he got hooked into this conspiracy fever. And unfortunately, he couldn't get himself out and it destroyed his career. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the JFK movie, of course, was based on two books, one of which was um, Garrison on the Trial of the Assassins, which is where you the play of, with your title on the Trial of Delusion. And the other book, I think, was by Jim Mars. So it was, it was unusual yep. that, uh, that 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 um, Oliver Stone's used the two different books here, but of course, focusing on the uh, on the Garrison story. So um, for many people, there's 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 a series of um, of different parts of evidence that people uh, get confused by and and uh, and, and don't seem to. Um, uh, accept the uh the narrative where does it change for you that you you wake up one day and go uh oh i've been going down the wrong pathway here i think it's when you really start to look at the primary evidence and you don't rely on conspiracy books um who are incredibly misleading and i've documented on my blog thousands of cases of where conspiracy books just aren't telling the truth 
Um, just simple things. Take Lee Harvey Oswald. He was a great shot. He was a sharpshooter in the Marines. He was shooting at 300 yards in the Marines without a, without a telescopic sight. And if you go to Daly Plaza, um, it's small. I mean, the first shot was 55 yards. These were easy, easy shots. And so you realize you've been misled by the conspiracy theorists who've been telling you he was a horrible shot, and they don't, they don't they don't want you to look at his Marine scorebook, for instance, which shows you what a great shot he was. Just stuff like that. That when you actually get to the primary evidence, uh, the conspiracy stuff is is just nonsense. So it, I mean, we can obviously talk about the the rifle, and that's part of the detail, isn't it? So yeah, we we can sure. get into that shortly, and uh, and. There are many other parts, of course, the witnesses. We're talking about the um, the Tippett murder, et cetera. There just seems to be yep. so much going on. And, of course, you get to the uh, the stage where Jack Ruby comes into play and Oswald yep. is pushed out into that underground uh, car park, uh, as it were, and then Jack Ruby comes out. When, If we just backtrack to it, perhaps in real time, when you saw that happen um, uh, and, and, and the whole world saw what was going on, how did you feel when you saw it? Did you think that it was over, that there was instant justice or that there was something else amiss? Well, I was only seven years old when that happened, I so I don't so. remember that um, at all. Um, I do remember the day that Kennedy was shot. I, I was in grade two, uh, but I, and it's hazy memories at best, so I don't remember when, when Ruby shot Oswald. So do you get a feeling, though, when you look back in history and think, wow, that was uh, something else that a man is just let into that area or gets himself into that situation? These are the parts of the uh, the story, I guess, that many people feel a great uh, discomfort with with wondering how all of this just came to be. And it's the um, it's the glossing over and the, the perhaps even an oversimplification of justice in that regard. Of course, Ruby made the comments that he, he didn't he felt for um, for, for for Jackie Kennedy. That was uh, something uh, that that. That was the the reaction there, and it makes sense on the well, surface. But you well, but that's you know, but you, you have to understand that, that that that's not true. I mean, Ruby, it was an impulsive act, and as with any impulsive act, after the act takes place, you try and come up with a reason. And so Ruby came up with many reasons. He wanted to show Jews had balls. He wanted to save Jackie from coming to to for a trial. Um, he had many many reasons because it was so impulsive. Mm. It's an interesting story. It's uh, it's it's quite 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 incredible, isn't it? Then why do you think though that uh, as we go to our first break, why do you think it is that um, after sixty years, it's still the story that just won't go away? Well, I don't know if it is a story that won't go away. I, I mean, I you know most of my friends don't don't care at all about the JFK assassination. They think I'm slightly crazy. Um, <laughs> how many people really care about this? Young younger people certainly don't care, mm. and you see it in the opinion polls and where uh, the, the the attitudes about conspiracy continually dropping since 2000. More and more people believe there was not a conspiracy, uh, and more and more people don't really care. Um, so I don't think it's that big a story. And in fact, the 60th wasn't that big at all. Yeah, well, you might uh, be able to argue you're right after 60 years, it seems that there was um, a, a lack of perhaps interest in, in getting a little bit further along, or perhaps it's a, a realisation that uh, there is no further interest in developing the case to look down for other pathways, and perhaps it's considered to be a settled story at that case. Now, um, uh, just quickly, you, you write the first book, um, and then you decide to go again after you've written I Was a JFK Conspiracy Freak, and then you move ahead two years later. What's the motivation to um, to go back again? Well, uh, James Diogenio, who's been on your show, was criticizing my book 
teenage JFK conspiracy freak, and he was basically saying that I really hadn't gone into the primary garrison documents. And, and uh, there was some truth to that, that I really hadn't gone into garrison's papers. And I, right around the time that he criticized my book, uh, somebody sent me an email. I was on an email list of saying, you know, all of garrison's papers are online. The, archi- the National Archives has put them online. And so I decided, let me go through them. And there were like 203 PDF files uh, between a, one between 100 and 200, 300 pages. And as I started going through them, I started finding what I would consider to be crazy memos. Memos that just made me laugh out loud. They were so ridiculously crazy. And I started putting them aside. And after I'd gotten around 30 or 40 of these crazy memos, I said, you know, Garrison's worse than I thought. I thought he was bad. But he's actually worse than I thought. And there's a book here because people have not seen these memos and I need to bring the, I need to bring these memos out. And, uh, and so I realized, you know, uh, it's off to the archives so I can see, uh, Harry Connick's papers. And I actually traveled to every archive in the United States that had primary garrison material to write my book. Goodness me, it's uh, an incredible uh, way of the research that goes on both sides of this story. It, it, it's amazing that there is, is it's, it's almost a competition in many ways because people still believe that there was something amiss in this story. And we're going to dig deeper after we take this break. Yep. Uh, where you are watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rounds. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold? Or COVID? Well, Darren, I... COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. At the top of the hour, we'll keep on top of the news. It's the most important thing we can do. On today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
Welcome back. My guest this hour, Fred Litwin. Fred, we're going to continue the conversation now. We're talking about book two, I believe, when we talk about Oliver Stone's Flim Flam. Actually, that was, um, uh, yeah, 2020. That's the second book? No, Flim Flam is the third book. Okay, I'm going backwards yeah, here. Garrison is the second. <laughs> I, uh, I'm looking at the website and I'm, they, might, they might be out of order, which is what's yeah, throwing me yeah. there. Oh, that's so, probably it, true. So, so if we look at, um, uh, if we just go to Oliver Stone for a moment, so um, it made a reputation as uh, as quite an incredible filmmaker in terms of storytelling, uh, cinematography, editing, unlike anyone else, but makes a name for himself as the conspiracy filmmaker. And there was obviously, there was, you know, films like Born on the Fourth of July, Heaven and Earth, I think was part of a trilogy, a Vietnam trilogy, and goes quite deep. JFK, we saw Platoon, of course, was the first one in that Vietnam series. He wrote, um, uh, I think it was Salvador with James Woods. So, you know, there's a real um, uh, a stable there of, you know, high quality, you know, heavy types of dramatic films. Um, were you a fan of Oliver Stone before the JFK movie came out? I was, yeah. I really, I mean, I really was a big fan and Platoon and Salvador in particular. I mean, James Wood is a very, very big, I'm a big fan of his. And uh, so those were, yeah, I was, I was a very big fan of Oliver Stone. And, and the reason I ask that, I think it's important that, again, and I, I talked about it in the opening, you know, biases. So you get to a point where you realise that um, maybe Stone's having a bit of a lent here. I don't trust his sources. They are different to the sources that I've got. And uh, and you're now really getting into this around about the same time period as, as JFK comes out the movie in 1991. But fast forward, and goodness me, it's 30 years later, uh, and, and, and you're writing um, a series of books. Um, where do you go from the point of view that um, you go, okay, Stone has got this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong? Has he got the whole story wrong, in, in your opinion, or or is there just parts of the facts here, or is it because he concentrates on Garrison that therefore um, uh, that's where the flaw in the argument is on Stone's side? Well, he's got everything wrong, but but I mean, here's what really happened is when he did JFK, the movie, he really wanted to talk about Vietnam and that was the whole premise of doing JFK. He wanted to talk about Vietnam and, and that's why Kennedy was killed, blah, blah, blah. And what happened is when, when, when JFK came out, the press didn't really want to talk about Vietnam. They wanted to talk about uh, ballistics and bullets and the medical evidence and, and all the minutia in the film. And he, I think he was caught off guard and he had to spend a year defending all that minutia, which was really not his, his interest. It wasn't really what he was strong in. And I think 30 years later, there was an opportunity with James Diogenio as a screenwriter to sort of come back and say, you know, I was right about the minutia. And I think that's what he was trying to do with his new documentary series. Mm, isn't that interesting? So uh, the, an ego gets in the way of, uh, of perhaps um, Stone's film career. Uh, and then it is insistent that he uh, that he comes back. And of course, that's 30 years later with that documentary that was both a two and a four hour. It's an incredible yep. amount of work, though, to put that in, isn't it? Uh, and, and just to write a book on a subject, as you've explained, that you've wandered uh, through libraries researching around the United States, uh, searching for, for evidence. And it's no different in, in that case. It's extraordinary when I talk to um, just to our audience today, Fred, and just think that uh, that that much work and you could still get the entire thing wrong uh, one way or the other. Does it discourage you or does it encourage you to say that I'm on the right track and I continue that I know what I'm doing? 
Well, I think I'm on the right track. I think I am. It's largely because I deal in primary documents. I don't think I don't think Oliver Stone actually really knows that much about the assassination, which is why he doesn't really. He'll only talk about it with other people who he's either friendly with or have his associates, uh, like James Diogenia, with him. He doesn't really want to debate or be questioned on it by by anybody. Mm. Now, if we get back into the. Um Jim Garrison's story, and you mentioned Harry Connick, Harry Connick Sr. here. Can you explain that relationship? How does Connick connect to Garrison? And Connick just died yesterday, um, wow. you know, at the age of 97. And in fact, I visited Harry Connick in his house uh, when he was 93. Uh, There's a picture of him in my book, and I just did a blog post tonight about Harry Connick. I mean, Harry Connick ran against Garrison in 1969. He did not win. And then he ran against Garrison in 1973 and finally won. Um, and then he was district attorney for 30 years. Uh, he told me, quite honestly, when he took over from Garrison, the whole office was a mess. Like every single case, they did not know where the appeal process was, who should be in jail, who should be released, what the state status of all the trials. They were just, it was complete, complete mess. And he had to review every single file uh, to get the office back in shape. And uh, he, obviously he does that. How do you get to, uh, to in touch with uh, Harry Connick Sr.? Um, is, this is obviously part of the research work there, and it's, it, it's obviously deep research that you're doing to try and get into the mind of Jim Garrison to understand the man better. Is, is that how it starts? Well, I, you know, I, I knew I was going to go to New Orleans. I, I was going to New Orleans to look at the papers of Irvin Diamond, who was Clay Shaw's trial attorney. And so, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of witnesses are dead by the time I'm going to New Orleans. Uh, but uh, he was alive, and I happened to have a friend uh, who actually knew him and sort of gave me his email address. It was all done by email. Out of the blue, I just sent him an email, and he replied. He was on email and uh, set up an appointment to go see him. And so you, you, you go see him. Explain that, that meeting because this is, um, I mean, it's, it's detail and minutiae for many people, uh, but really this is the, the meat of, of the story here because um, uh, it's, it's the, the process of research, the process of really wanting to understand and to go outside the traditional square, so to speak, uh, that you, you're making the, the, these inroads. What happens when you, uh, you finally get to, to talk? Well, I go to his house. I mean, I take, a, I take an Uber to his house. And, uh, I mean, he was 93 years old in very good shape, but like anybody who was 93, I mean, his memory was starting to go and he was not physically, he was good, but not, he was a 93 year old. And so I, I wasn't there a long time because I was really caught. I didn't want to tire him out. Mm. Um, and I didn't want to get into, you know, really minutia type questions. Sure. So I was, I was interested in an overview of what was going on in New Orleans and what happened when he took over and who he hired and, and what he thought about Clay Shaw and the case and et cetera, et cetera. And so it was a nice overview and I took a picture. I was very happy, but I, I, I really didn't want to push him too hard. No, indeed. And um, if we go a little bit further now, and you've brought up the name Clay Shaw, and I wanted to just get a bit more information here. What is it that um, that you learn now about Clay Shaw that uh, obviously goes against what Jim Garrison uh, may have been a, a preconceived bias, some form of uh, homophobia, perhaps? Um, what do you learn about Clay Shaw? Well, he was beloved in New, or in New Orleans, and in fact, which is one of the reasons why there's a plaque in his honor on Governor Nichols Street in New Orleans. So there's no plaque for Garrison. Uh, he was beloved. I mean, people liked him. He was a pillar of the community. He contributed to the uh, art 
the artistic community. Um, he was renovating properties in New Orleans. He, he was uh, a very, very good man. Um, and is he had retired in 1965. All he wanted to do was to uh, translate and write plays in Spanish and English. And he also wanted to renovate properties in the French Quarter. And all of a sudden, he's charged with conspiring to kill Kennedy. And it ruined the rest of his life. I mean, it's a very, very sad story and a horrible situation to a man who had absolutely nothing to do with anything. Now, in the film, it was one of the scenes that just blew me away. Um, watching it as a 19-year-old in three hours, it's quite intense. And it was when one of the characters from the uh, the garrison office uh, announces that Clay Shaw has an alias and it's this Clay Bertrand character. Was there any truth and a story behind that? None. None. In fact, as if you read my book, I mean, there's a great garrison memo from Louis Ivan, who is his chief investigator, saying we've scoured the French Quarter. We can't find Clay Bertrand at all. Mm. Um, and in fact, he had one source who told him there's just no such character. It's it's amazing, isn't it, to think that, uh, that there's, they're completely like split narratives in this story. And then there's this other character that comes up played by in the movie, Joe Pesci, David Ferry. What, where does David Ferry come into this story? This is a very sad story, too. I mean, David Ferry, the real David Ferry is nothing like what you read in the conspiracy books. He had nothing to do with anything. He didn't know Lee Harvey Oswald. He was a gay man who was a pilot for Eastern Airlines. He lost his job in 1961 because of uh, cavorting with, uh, well, he had a couple of, uh, he was arrested a couple of times on morals, morals charges with cavorting with underage teenage boys. And he was fired from uh, Eastern Airlines, and uh, which ended up having him live in near poverty. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's Garrison's chief suspect. And uh, unfortunately, he died of natural causes. But, but you know, uh, that allowed Garrison to say all sorts of things about him. But there's no evidence at all that David Ferry knew Lee Harvey Oswald or was involved in anything. It's an amazing story, isn't it, that these characters, and here I am, you know, thinking 30 years later and remembering it like yesterday as a part of this uh, a part of yep. this film. And it's a film that, you know, you recommend to your friends, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, now it comes with the caveat that you need to do a little bit more research to be able to provide uh, said perspectives. So you're working through this uh, particular story, and uh, if we won't go back a little bit more into uh, some of the other things that Oliver Stone got wrong, we're talking about um, perhaps... Uh, the, the, this bullet that comes up and the, and the idea of that, not just the magic bullet, this bullet on the, on the hospital gurney uh, without lacking a chain of evidence, that is a, is a very sore sticking point for people. What did you uncover when you were researching this? Well, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, this will show you exactly where conspiracy theorists don't want to do the work. I mean, in, in the documentary series, they basically said that one of the FBI agents, Elmer Lee Todd, that his initials were missing from the magic bullet. Um, and because he had said that he had put his initials on. And I uh, was corresponding with one of my friends who was trying to find that. There's, uh, he was looking at pictures and trying to find the initials. And I said, you know what? Forget what you're doing. In 2016, the National Archives released very high-res photographs of all of the evidence. You have to go to those photographs and look there. The problem was that these photographs are so high-res that you have to stitch them together uh, using your computer. And it was actually beyond my capability um, with computers. And so I hired a consultant to actually go to the NARA website, download all this stuff. He needed a, 
and you had to buy him a huge hard drive and he stitched all the photographs together and he sent them to my friend Steve in Texas and Steve had actually learned how to use a special viewer just to look at these photographs and once he did there's the initials they're right there and and so this is one of the things that the people who the James Diogenio did not check the photographs at NARA and this is one of the problems of conspiracy theorists he was accepting uh, a conspiracy article that had been published years before and did not go to NARA and actually check the best evidence and this is what the problem of, of conspiracy theorists it's uh, it certainly is isn't it because at the end of the day you must deal in facts and it may well be that facts remain underreported or not reported at all and that's a very different thing but here is a challenge of what was presented as evidence and that's where we're going aren't we Fred that um, th this is the idea of examining and re-examining things that are taken as as gospel but of course we haven't got any further than any official narrative that's ever said that anyone else was responsible for the uh, murder of JFK than Lee Harvey Oswald what do you conclude then that was Oswald's motivation to go as far as he did we'll never we'll never know exactly what motivated him because he was killed but I think that he was a very political man. He was a big fan of Fidel Castro, and I think it was it was a political act. Um, in September 1963, when he was living in New Orleans, there was an article, September 1963, in the Times-Picayune of a speech that Castro had just given where he had talked about sabotage raids against Cuba, and he warned that American leaders might not be, uh, might be open for retribution if these, uh, these, attacks uh, did not stop most certainly Oswald saw that article and I think that he was appalled at what the Kennedy administration was doing to Fidel Castro he was a big fan and I think that he killed Kennedy as a blow for the Cuban revolution it's incredible isn't it when you think that uh the planning that must get, get, be involved if he's acting alone to work out because of course he's got this job in the uh in the, in the texas uh book depository uh he, he gets himself and realizes that that's where he wants to be just to line all of that up uh it, it has to take a level of planning and and real determination uh to be able to do that do, do you consider or in that do you ever just perhaps stop and pause and try and get into the mind of how oswald might have been able to work all this out for himself he didn't he didn't work it all out it's it, it's a large part of this is happenstance i mean he just happened to get a job at the texas school book depository in fact when he applied for that job with roy truly there's another warehouse another uh, you know a block away uh truly sent another person to work at other, at other warehouse if he had sent oswald to that other warehouse he would not have had the ability to 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 shoot at Kennedy. So some of this is happenstance. Um, it wasn't planned out that far in advance because he had to go back to the Ruth Payne's house on Thursday night to get his rifle. Yeah, it's... Um again it's 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 a level of detail etc then of course you've got the argument of him running down the stairs and whether he was seen or, or not being seen ab absolutely we could discuss that because that's easy to debunk too yeah I mean, go on what i really all this stuff that you think mm. are like things are so easy to debunk and i have a chart in my oliver stone book that shows you the timeline of 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 oswald shooting and the other witnesses they go down the stairs he simply beat uh the women on the fourth floor it's really easy to show.
Mm-hmm. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because uh, the heat of the moment distraction, the last thing anyone's doing is looking behind them instead of outside the window of what's going on, which would be the logical thing that people would have been doing at that stage, hearing gunshots and screaming, etc. Um, it, it's just an extraordinary story, whichever way that you you, you look at this to realise that, uh, that so many challenges, so many parts of the evidence. But at the same time, people are always critical of the Warren Commission and in many ways, Alan Dulles. Do you think that there is any uh, criticism that it's deserving therefore well number one alan dulles was put on the warren commission at the request of robert kennedy he wanted dulles on the warren commission i think one of the reasons he wanted dulles was to help keep secret the uh, the uh, attempts to kill fidel fidel castro i i do have a couple of criticisms of the warren commission and and two very big ones the first thing is they did not hire a panel of forensic pathologists to examine the autopsy x-rays and photographs they should have done that. Had they done that in 1964 and examined all the autopsy material, they would have had a detailed report, um, which would have not allowed the critics to sort of wonder about where the wounds are, what entrance or exit. They would have had all the medical evidence they need. The secondary where I'm critical is they did not do a good enough job of evaluating the Zapruder film. So they missed the lapel flip on Connolly's lapel flip, which corresponds to when Kennedy and Connolly were hit. They did not mention the forward movement of Kennedy's head from frame 312 to 313. Had they really analyzed the Zapruder film and explained it, and explained the single bullet theory with proper trajectory diagrams, I think a lot of the criticism would have gone away. Do you think that the uh, single gun theory, uh, single sorry, the, the magic bullet is the this sticking point for many people that they don't get past? It was for me. I mean, it was a big thing for me until I saw real trajectory diagrams. And once you see real trajectory diagrams, Kennedy and Connolly are in perfect alignment. And the bullet, actually, the condition of the bullet is exactly as you would expect with a tumbling bullet that tumbles out of Kennedy's neck and hits Connolly and then tumbles further and enters his wrist backwards, which is why there was lead extruded from the, the bullet. It's Everything is completely consistent with reality. Goodness me, it's just an incredible story and uh, three books, Fred, that you've written on it. Uh, I was a teenage conspiracy. With, with one more to come. I mean, there's a fourth one in the works. Fair enough. I'm just going to read the other ones out. Um, Oliver Stone's Flim Flam, and the, uh, which was book three and book two on the trail of delusion, Jim Garrison, the great accuser. Have you got a title for the, uh, for the fourth book? Yeah, it's going to be A Heritage of Nonsense, Jim Garrison's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. How about that? It's almost... And, uh... and, 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 and what I've done is when, when, I, when I wrote the Jim Garrison book, I, I wanted to tell not just the Clay Shaw story, but there were other stories of Garrison craziness. I mean, you may know he charged Edgar Eugene Bradley, who is a promoter of Christian radio, with conspiring to kill Kennedy as well. Not just Clay Shaw. He, he charged Edgar Eugene Bradley. Thank God Ronald Reagan would not allow him to be extradited. Uh, to Louisiana. That whole case was bogus. And in fact, Garrison ended up apologizing to Bradley uh, years later. So I, I told her six different stories in that book, but I've got so many other stories that I'm going to tell in my new book uh, about Jim Garrison. Wow. We, uh, it's, it's just uh, incredible, incredible what you've been able to uncover and write about. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more here with Fred Litwin on Weekends with Jason Olborn. You're watching and listening to TNT. Hi. I'm your retirement fear. 
But don't be scared. You're still in pre-tirement. Pre-tirement? Does that mean I have more time to plan? Precisely. Here, this is pretirement.org. <sighs> Retirement savings options? <laughs> Potential tax breaks. Yep. Move. Oh, I could build up savings for my side hustle. This isn't scary. I'm doing it. You got this. Visit thisispretirement.org for free resources to help you customize your action plan. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost, the International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News, today's Talk, News Talk, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends and you're with my guest, Fred Litwin, for the hour, an author of three and soon to be four books on the JFK assassination. Now, Fred, where do people go to have a look at your website, perhaps, and get some more information? I guess there will be many people now who are saying, show me the primary documents. Yeah, so if they go to my website, www.onthetrailofdelusion.com, it's all one word, onthetrailofdelusion.com, you can click on my blog and there's like over 850 articles, but there's also little, uh, you can find little tags that you can click on if you want more information on David Ferry or Perry Russo or the medical evidence, you can go all sorts of places um, and I've posted a lot of primary documents. Uh, look, that's fantastic, and uh, many people will want to get on and have a look at, at primary evidence and be able to test their wares and skills because researching obviously begins at home and you have a choice of what media you choose to, uh, to, to consume and to be aware of, and many people have become their own writers, researchers, become sub-sackers, social media posts, etc. and what a great way to be able to get more information by following someone who has done the primary research. And I guess in many ways it's serving your own apprenticeship of learning to to, uh, uncover information as many people are doing in these crazy changing times. Jim, just to uh, switch gear for a moment, you um, you become a, uh, a music and film, uh, you release your own label, etc. Tell me a little bit more how that starts and where your interest came come from. Well, I, I've always been interested in music, but I, I worked for Intel Corporation and I actually retired from Intel in 2000. I was working in Singapore and I decided to come back to Canada and I, what am I going to do? I, I'm still, I'm only 43 years old. I need to find something to do. And so I decided to start a blues label. Um, I was an investor in a folk music label and I contacted them and said, could you help me start a blues label? And they agreed and we shared offices and uh, started finding talent and uh 
I released over 70 CDs. Of course, as you know, the music industry, I entered the music industry just as it was starting to go downhill. And so it was probably the yes. worst time to, to enter an industry, but it was a lot of fun doing it. And uh, I won a lot of awards and uh, released a lot of great music. It's it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's the idea of finding, as I keep saying on this show, find your obsession, make it your profession, and you never work a day in your life. And there you are uh, creating a music label at the end of the, the CD era. It, it reminds me of people I know who were looking at investing into the video rental business, um, and, and all of a sudden the blockbuster became yeah. uh, became obsolete overnight. That's right. Quite incredible how that happened. But at the same time, it doesn't stop you from um, obviously creating a label and getting people's music out there. How much has the music industry changed since the death of the CD? Well, it's changed a lot because artists used to count on selling their CDs off the stage. Mm. That was a very big part of the income, both for the artist and for the label. And that's gone away. I mean, it's just disappeared. And so artists, uh, there's no less money for the artists. They have to make their money through gigs. Um, and that's tough. It's a very, very tough environment. So, uh, it's tough for everybody and, and it's tough for the labels because now, um, everything went to iTunes and everything goes to Spotify and you're just not getting paid very much at all. This is a really interesting point, and it goes towards uh, copyright, uh, the idea of using someone else's uh, information or et cetera or playing a song and, uh, and and the fair use of that versus the fair rate for that because it's one thing to um, to buy a, a download a song from iTunes and pay a couple of bucks for it, and you would assume that um, a proportion, a significant proportion would go to the artist. And then, of course, you've got streaming services that goes the other way. And, uh, and I've had musician friends of mine complain that after – you know, a million um, plays of their of their music, which seems to be incredibly successful. They're talking about pennies or small pittances That's of right. money. Is it that bad? It is. It's really it's really bad. I mean, iTunes was great because you would get paid fairly by iTunes, but once it goes to the streaming services, the money disappears. This is it, right? Because how is that music distributed? I was working um, as a producer in uh, in Sydney at a at a TV station, and um, we had access to again to to, to music royalties, etc., for use in promos, etc. And um, we were, there was a particular way that you would do it. If you used a particular track in whatever, you would write it down. We had a license that we could use across the company for um, I think it was twelve months, and you renewed it. And I remember the uh, the rep coming in and, and explaining how it worked, and I said. Um, if we put all this information down, when does the artist actually get paid? And he kind of brushed me off uh, as if, oh, you know, they get paid at some stage. And I really thought maybe they maybe they don't. How does that actually work? If if this company, for example, is spending five or $10,000 a year for the access to pretty much unknown music, and, and let's say, for example, you use a 1,000 tracks in the year, so you've got $5 per track to share, and obviously the company who's sold the product for $5,000 to this TV station is going to want to keep a significant amount of that money. So if you divide it all out, this person, uh, the artist, might maybe see a dollar if they're lucky, and, and that that's the part of it that never seems to have any balance here. There seems to be, it's a very litigious area, but um, at the end of the day, the, the, the artist is the one that's seems to be getting a pretty raw deal uh, in, in this yep. in this world. And it's the, probably the reason why you have to gig if you're an artist today to try and at least get some sort of uh, real income. Yep, absolutely. It's it's a real problem. And, and uh, you then move into um, to film and, and festivals, et cetera, Free Thinking Film Society. Tell me a bit more about how that started and, uh, and what types of films and the success that you've had there. 
Well, I was very, very upset when Michael Moore started releasing uh, Fahrenheit 911 and some of the stuff that he was doing. And I found a, um, there was a guy, in the, a small filmmaker in the States who made a film called Michael Moore Hates America. It's a mm. small, you know, documentary film. And I wanted to see this film. And I went to the local repertory cinema in Ottawa. I said, could you bring in this film? And they said, uh, not really. It's not what, we, not what we do. It's not the kind of film we want to bring in. And I was talking to a friend and he said, well, why don't we rent a hall and show it ourselves? And I said, that's a really good idea. And so I started calling around and I found a theater. And by the time I had done that, um, I was then interested in a film about radical Islam. And so I rented a theater to show a film about radical Islam. And lo and behold, uh, somebody protested and the, the company canceled my film. And I was able to get some headlines in the local press. And when I put the film back on, I was packed. Um, it was a massive, massive success. And that was the start of free thinking films. And what we really try to do is focus on liberty, freedom, and democracy, mostly documentaries, but not exclusively. Book launches, panel discussions. And we wanted to discuss uh, places like China, North Korea, radical Islam, uh, Israel, we, we, you know, free speech. Uh, indoctrination on campuses, left-wing indoctrination on campus. Um, did a whole variety of topics like that over the years. Gosh, it's uh, an exciting field, isn't it? Because uh, everyone loves to see a good film, but to make it your business and uh, and then to have the success that you did there. Uh, of some of the films that have been successful since, can you think of any off the top of your head that uh, had similar success to the Radical Islam film? Well, one thing that really happened to me was I found a uh, film about the uh, Iran's quest for a nuclear weapon. And I arranged that film to be brought in. I hired a speaker, an ex-former CIA agent from the States to come in as my speaker. And the night of that film, um, to make a long story short, there was a threat against the building that I was showing it in. And that building canceled the film. And uh, I... I got, managed to managed to get a lot of press because of the cancellation. It became a, such a brouhaha that the Canadian government actually sent a note to the Iranian government through the Swiss government to tell them to stop interfering with our uh, free speech in Canada. And I eventually put on the film a few weeks later, and uh, uh, the archives, which is where I was showing it, had to spend $15,000 in security. And we had a packed house, and it was an absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, my phone was ringing off the hook with press uh, interviews. It was quite an amazing time. Oh, isn't that fantastic that uh, the, the, the buzz and excitement, it was really there in real time. Now, you mentioned uh, in the various different films, you mentioned Israel, and I think it's a good time to ask you about uh, your perspective now um, on, on what's happening over there, obviously, after the October 7 attacks. And it seems that the world is uh, is tiring as it normally does about the conflict, but uh, there's much more going on in the background. There's the talk about a two-state solution, and there's the talk about the rejection, once again, of a two-state solution. Have you, uh, have you traveled to Israel and have you been able to form an opinion about what's going on that uh, that perhaps is being overlooked? Yeah, I've been to Israel six times over the years and uh, in fact going back again in February. Um, so, you know, the, what people need to realize that Israel has consistently over the years offered a state to the Palestinians over and over again, many times. They offered a state in 2000 and 2001 and 2006. And every time Israel has made an offer of an independent state, it's been rejected by the Palestinians without ever coming back with an offer of their own. Mm. And so Israel has tried to 
to have a two-state solution, but it's, the problem is Palestinian rejectionism, and they don't want a, a they want a state, but they want Israel as their state. They don't want to live side by side with a Jewish state, and that is the crux of the issue. So, do you see that there's there is any form of solution here, or is this a, an ongoing battle? Therefore, that will just take. It certainly won't be solved in our lifetimes. What's your general feel of how things can play out? The only solution will be to find Palestinian leaders who are willing to live side by side with Israel. Once we could find leaders who will say that and believe that and convince the Israeli people that there really can be peace, there will be peace. I look at Anwar Sadat. I mean, Anwar Sadat, you know, when he decided that he wanted to make peace with, with Israel, he came to Jerusalem with a big smile on his face. He hugged Golda Meir. He hugged all the Israeli leaders. He convinced the Israeli population that he was serious about peace. And then peace happened between Egypt and, and Israel, and Israel gave back the Sinai Desert to Egypt. And so we need a Palestinian leader who can smile and mean, mean it when he says he wants to make peace with Israel as a Jewish state. And he's got to convince the Israeli people that he's serious. When he does that, it will happen very quickly. It sounds, therefore, that uh, the idea that Hamas being the problem in the middle here is is part of the reason why Israel's pushing for their eradication. Do you support that notion? Absolutely. Hamas is a genocidal organization dedicated not to the destruction of Israel, but to the murder of Jews worldwide. You just have to read their charter. They are a genocidal organization and, and they need to uh, to be eliminated. Uh, it, it's it is difficult, isn't it, to, to think that uh, this is something that seems to go around and around and around. But uh, the, the the dogma that you um, that you talk about there, you know, a genocidal organisation. Uh, that how can you possibly live side by side? So uh, technically, that must be eradicated before you can ever move forward from there. So so I guess what I'm asking is. Hamas is the first part of it, and then you're saying that new Palestinian leadership that is uh, is, is pro-living side by side would be the only way out? Well, I think there has to be some sort of denazification program amongst the Palestinians to get beyond the rejectionism. There's so much hatred. There's so much determination to destroy Israel. We've got to work on this. We have to have the international community work on this to bring forth leaders and education to allow uh, for the two states to live side by side. Now, we've seen some progress in the Abraham Accords with the United Arab Emirates and, and uh, some of the other countries, Morocco, who have made peace with Israel, who seem very genuine in their desire to live um, with a Jewish state, and we need to see that extended to the Palestinians. Do you look back then at the uh, Abraham Accords that was part of Jared Kushner's work in the Trump administration as uh, the best part so far? And therefore, following on from that, do you think that uh, if Trump is returned to the White House, that that might be um, uh, kick-started again? Well, the Abraham Accords, the Abraham Accords were a massive success and a, a huge, huge thing. Um, but I don't think it relies on an American president. It really relies on the other Arab countries. Sir, uh, Saudi Arabia wants to make peace um, with Israel, and hopefully we can get past this war and have them make peace. But the Palestinians are a different kettle of fish. And it's not a matter of Trump or Biden or any American president. Something has to happen with Palestinian thought. 
to get them to start to accept Israel as a true partner in peace. And that's going to be, it's very hard. And I wish I had more answers, mm. um, but it's going to be a very, very tough slog to get that changed. The mindset of Palestinians, which right now reject Israel as a, as a legitimate country. Yeah, indeed. And of course, the rebuilding process is going to be massive, but uh, it, it always provides a new hope. Do you, um, it's, uh, goodness me, it's, it's, I mean, I could ask you another another 10 questions, but I realise that we're out of time there, Fred. Look, I just want to ask you well, quickly before we go to just repeat the website for people to uh, be able to look at your work again. It's www.onthetrailofdelusion.com, all one word. Uh, just go there and you'll find uh, lots of interesting articles on the assassination. Look, Fred Litwin, it's been a delight and a privilege to be able to speak to you about the work that you're doing and continue to do with four books, another one on the way. What a thrill. We're going to take a break. And when we come back after the news, I will have not one but two guests with me to talk about the case of Julian Assange, one of our very own that seems to be put into a prison and not allowed out. There is a lot more to that story. And we will dig into all of that after the break. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Alborn here on Turn 2 